Carla, where are you? Ray? Are you here? No. I won't be long. I just have one more thing I have to do. Welcome to the Magic Lantern Podcast, an ongoing informal discussion of the films we love and the things we love about them. I am Erica Long. And I am Cole Rowley. Each episode of The Magic Lantern will be devoted to one film that we alternately select and we will discuss why it is significant to us. Just a note, whether the film is a classic or a more contemporary title, this will be an in-depth discussion that will include explicit plot details and potential spoilers. We are at episode 157, Back to Cole's Choice, which is a little bittersweet this month. I would say by the time we get to the end, much more bitter than sweet. (laughs) (laughs) I have chosen The Square from 2008, and that's directed by Nash Edgerton and starring David Roberts, Claire Vanderboom, Joel Edgerton, Anthony Hayes, Hannah Mangan-Lawrence, and Australian national treasure Bill Hunter. I was going to say something if you forgot Bill Hunter. Oh, no. He's such a huge personality. He's great in this, in the small role that he has. I love Bill Hunter. Rest in peace, Bill Hunter, I should say. And Joel Edgerton actually co-wrote this with Matthew Dabner. It's about the way a man's life begins to unravel when the woman he's having an affair with brings him a bag of cash that she has taken from her small-time hood husband, saying that this could be their chance at a fresh start. They concoct a plan to get this money in a manner that it won't be missed, and that is what sets us down that classic noir path of what happens to best-laid plans. I think this may be the bittersweet part that you were talking about, actually, because we have established a tradition on the show that May is our month to celebrate one of our oldest and truest cinematic loves, film noir. And that originally came about because May is usually the month for the Film Noir Foundation to bring their Noir City Festival to Austin. Yes, that's the bittersweet part that we don't get to hang out with Eddie Muller this year. Yeah, pandemic circumstances being what they have been, the festival is on hold, so two Mays in a row now, we have had to go without it. In addition to that, the theater that always hosted Noir City, the Alamo Draft House, the Alamo Ritz specifically, has now closed down for good. So when the festival comes back, it will be in a new home. Let's vote for our house. (laughs) Well, I was going to say... Let's vote for Austin Film Society, because I don't know that I want all those people in the house. I'm not saying all the people. I'm just saying Eddie Muller, come to our house and show movies for us. At any rate, we are keeping the noir vibe intact on the show because this choice is overflowing with some great noir elements. Now, the first time I saw this was at South by Southwest Film in 2009. And festivals are always such a great setting to see something like this, I think. You have an engaged audience, and there's this kind of anticipatory buzz about things. And it was very well received at South by Southwest, but I think I still would have preferred to see it at Fantastic Fest, because that audience just eats up any genre film with a wicked streak. This would have been perfect for that. Do you recall when you saw it, did they also show the short film? That's the other thing I was going to bring up. Speaking of The Square... You have to see Spider, the short film that came along with it. That was Edgerton's bread and butter before he made this first feature. He made a handful of really great short films, and that was paired with this when it was making the festival rounds. 
and it's actually on the Blu-ray. So if you have the disc itself, they come together. And if you don't have that, then it's just on YouTube. You can find it pretty easily. And I would say if you haven't watched the film or you haven't watched them together, I would say even watch Spider first if you're coming to this for the first time or returning to it, just like you would have in that festival setting, because it sets the tone perfectly. You spend this 10 minutes, basically, and your brain will be calibrated for the dark sense of humor that the Edgertons have and the more unnerving surprises that come in the square. And the short comes at you fast. So don't pull the classic Eric along, look at your phone at the exact <laughs> pivotal moment. <laughs> or get distracted by a squirrel outside. Right. Keep your eyes glued to the screen because you don't want to miss a second of it. Well, my intro to the film wasn't quite as exciting as yours was. I had just read about it and got really excited and then finally got to rent it. You got excited about it because it was in that neo-noir vein. It seemed right up your alley. Exactly. And Australian. And it just sounded very cool. And I felt like I was the only one watching it. And it was a fantastic experience. Totally lived up to my excitement for it way back when. It was also the first time that I'd encountered the Edgerton brothers, too. Was it the same for you? It was the same for me, though. I didn't really know anything about them, so I didn't have any association with them or with them and the film. How did you characterize them? Was it a significant thing for you? I think I had the same ground floor vibe that I had with Blood Simple, Cohen brothers, Edgerton brothers, and I was already inclined to like Nash because he started as a stuntman. It seems like a very Australian path to becoming a director. And there's a precedent here in my viewing history that lends it to me enjoying this film and that career path, especially coming from my youth. I grew up in the evil Knievel era, basically. Daredevils were regularly on primetime television, and I even had the evil Knievel stunt bike toy, the greatest toy ever manufactured on Earth. It was very much like the man himself. It was exciting and indestructible. It seemed like there was nothing I could do to that toy that would make it not work. I could jump it off things. I could set it on fire. It's incredible. So this is what I grew up with. And there's a whole subset of 70s films that felt like they were made just for me in that regard. And Hal Needham, he's the obvious touchstone in all of this in terms of stuntmen turned directors. I just love Hal Needham and his entire legacy unparalleled work ethic and ingenuity in the stunt world. And he broke 56 bones, including his back twice. He was the first person to test airbags in automobiles. He basically invented so many gadgets and techniques that he changed the way that that work was done forever. And he had a long association with Burt Reynolds. And so all of those films that came from that, they defined part of that era. Hooper, which is about stuntmen, so therefore it's my favorite. But the Smokey and the Bandit movies too, the Cannonball Run movies, Stroker Ace, Megaforce, Rad. A week didn't go by in my youth, basically, that I didn't see a firewalk or someone fall off a huge building. But especially with Hal Needham jumping a car over some outrageous obstacle or someone getting thrown through the front window of a bar in a brawl. Kind of a trademark, a signature there. It really was an amazing time to be alive. And interestingly, just like the Edgerton brothers, these stuntmen turned directors throughout history, they kind of have a muse or a relationship like that with certain actors. Obviously, Hal Needham and Burt Reynolds. Buddy Van Horn had Clint Eastwood and vice versa. Even John Ford 
was a stuntman in the early part of his career and, like the Edgertons, worked for his brother Francis. I had no idea. Yeah, in one instance, they used a little too much gunpowder in an explosion, and it put John Ford in the hospital with a broken arm for about six weeks. Maybe we should just do a History of Stuntmen podcast now that I'm rambling like this. Well, it's definitely not the same for me, though. I just don't have that same insider knowledge of the industry. I didn't know any of those notable names when I was a kid. Yeah, but didn't you want to jump your bike off stuff? Or make a parachute out of a bedsheet and jump off the roof of the house? No, I wanted to be with Matt Houston and Magnum P.I. and solve (laughs) crimes. That's where my interests lay. I would say, though, the person that I know now is somebody like Zoe Bell. Mm Mm-hmm. And by the way, there's a fun documentary that came out in 2020 for others like me, and it's called Stunt Women, The Untold Hollywood Story. Well, even though it's Edgerton's freshman feature, this really doesn't feel like a first film to me. This is made by someone who has paid close attention to how movies work and studied and soaked up all the tricks. And it feels like he has probably played this movie through in his head a thousand times before he actually committed it to film. But that's deceptive, though, because it's not even his story. Like I mentioned, his brother Joel wrote it with Matthew Dabner, and Nash guided that process a little bit. But as well-crafted as it is, you couldn't be faulted for thinking that this is something that he spent years on. And going back to Bill Hunter for just a second, I think the credit also lies with casting it impeccably. You get the right people to do all of those roles. And you'll see other faces from Australia that you'll recognize. So basically, I just love how assured it is. And often, first-time filmmakers, they'll try to squeeze every eye-catching technical flourish or a clever bit of writing or both into the film Because who knows if you'll get to make another one. You want to pull out all the stops and show what you can do. And sometimes that works, like with the aforementioned Coen brothers, or someone like Sam Raimi, someone that has a real signature. And sometimes it doesn't. But for the most part here, that sort of overload is studiously avoided. If there's a giveaway, it's this. If there's anything that Edgerton is guilty of, it's putting in every possible instance of bad luck and how a thing can go wrong. But those things happen here mostly in character beats or in small circumstances. And so it's absolutely the opposite of showy. So that really appeals to me. I think Roger Ebert said it really well. It never pushes too hard or moves too fast. It lovingly, almost sadistically, lays out the situation (laughs) and deliberately demonstrates all the things that can go wrong, and I mean all the things. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Along with that sadistic vibe, the other thing that I take from it, like I was saying, is that you really get a sense of scrappy, can-do, independent filmmaking, like you do with one of my absolute favorites, Blue Ruin, for example. It fits nicely with that. I think that's a great analog to go with this. And just like we mentioned in our upcoming Patreon episode about the Day of the Beast, there's a bonus here too, because it's a Christmas movie as well. Now being said in Australia, you don't have the same satisfying winter bleakness to add to the mix like you do with something like Blast of Silence, but it's a nice dark touch, I think, to set this around the holidays. It's always odd though, living in the Northern Hemisphere, to see that Christmas picnic, it feels more like what we would have for the 4th of July here in the States. It always takes my brain a second to adjust to that. So should we get to the film proper since we're talking about those things? 
Let's do it. Okay, like so many classics of the genre, Double Indemnity, The Postman Always Rings Twice, Body Heat, there's always sex, huh, in these things. Erica, what's so great about dirty old sex? I think the words you just used describe <laughs> it all. Because it's uh, super dirty and sexy. Well, the economy of this opening scene and the way that it visually lays out the aesthetics of infidelity with the cars and the dogs, I think all of this is just brilliant. Well, you know me. I love a good soundscape. And that's the first thing that struck me watching it again. It's being under the bridge. We constantly hear that sound of cars going over those divots. And we'll hear it again and again. It's all these flyovers. Nash Edgerton, he has talked actually about writing and filming the scene that covers how these characters first met. In retrospect, I am glad they didn't use that scene. How about you? The same for me. I like it even more because I think it gives us, you and I specifically, a little bit of a difference here, a little bit of a disagreement, because I think very specifically about how far into their story we are as the film's first act begins. And by that, I really mean, at what point in the affair are they? Are they at the same point? Are they at different points? And separate of all of that, I really like that it makes our discovery of how small their community is. We see how intertwined their lives are. It makes it all the more poignant. It actually kind of makes my hair stand up on end at certain points, and I think it grounds it deeper in reality. So for me, it becomes all about what happens next, because I realized that this first act is really the deal to take the money. That would normally be at the end of the film. That would normally be what we build up to. It just subverts expectations in this way that I love neo-noir to do. And I like the shorthand they use, too, to communicate some of this, how you can extrapolate part of this relationship and figure out maybe where they are just based on the behavior of the dogs. I realized during this rewatch that I think a lot about these characters, which is one of the strengths of the movie. I think about it during the film. I think about it after the film. So you're thinking about where they are in the spectrum of this relationship. The thing I'm thinking about is how much is enough? What will satisfy these characters at this point? So do you view that question for them separately or as a whole? Oh, very definitely separately. So for Ray, is it to get away with a bit of money that would be enough or with a lot of money? Or is it just to leave his wife or does he want to completely disappear from that whole life? And to me, I'm completely on the fence. I'm not sure. I tend to lean that in the beginning, it's just a little bit of money. It's just enough. But then it seems like completely disappear because I think for Carla, she wants to disappear beyond the reach of her husband, beyond the reach of his family. Because again, when we see how intertwined their lives are, they can't just go one town over, for example. It's funny now that you spell it out. I said, I think of this as two very distinct paths that each of them are on. But I realize my general assessment of them, I think of them the same way in this regard. I think this answer to what will satisfy them is basically nothing. And the most sad thing about the whole situation is that they don't know themselves well enough at this point to grasp that. 
they will always be chasing something more. Different things for each one, maybe. But being as we're talking about sex to start with this whole thing, what pleasure do you think it is that they each get out of this affair? Because to me, I don't think they truly care for each other. Or at least she doesn't care for him, right? It's the allure of the illicit, I think, that drives her because she also has this husband that she knows is a small-time gangster. How do you see all that stuff? I think you're on drugs. <laughs> <laughs> Though something that you said a minute ago makes me recalibrate my own thoughts. I wonder if that's why I'm on the fence about his motivations because of you saying, he doesn't know himself well enough. He thinks, I just need a little bit, but he doesn't realize, no, I need everything. And I think you're absolutely right again about thinking about these characters and their backstory. I've developed an entire backstory around her. She's younger. So to me, this is a young marriage that she has. I don't think there were a ton of other possibilities. I also think with her husband, this was his first big actual haul. I love that we don't know where the money even comes from. Now that you think about it, I really have this story developed in my head too, because I think it's so weird that they are together. This must have started in their youth, but for a character like him, I don't see him getting married to this girl unless he's made her pregnant, but they don't have a child. I Interesting. see him being trapped, quote unquote, into this relationship because he doesn't seem like the kind of person that would want to live that life. It's so interesting because they're also not in this big crime-ridden area. There's no gang out looking for him. So the stakes seem not quite as high. The money definitely stands out, but there doesn't seem to be a lot of notice being taken of it. The police aren't out looking for it as far as we know. Everything seems so low-level and amateurish. So I think for him, it could have just been, Mom is telling me I got to get married and start a family. The rest of his family is settled too. His sister is well settled. All of these people are just living, quote unquote, normal lives. But anyway, sorry, back to the affair <laughs> specifically. What struck me right away was the passion. There's still a ton of passion. It hasn't soured at this point. And I see real contentment when they're finishing up in the car. We see the literal moment where this sours. And I will get to that in a second. Okay. I mean, even the dogs are happy just hanging out. I love the way that he looks nervous for a second at the door to the motel room the second time we see them together. I think they definitely care for each other. I think she's ready to go and has said so before this moment, even before the money has come to them. I don't think it's a score that she knew was being planned. It also may be that Ray is more used to being corrupt like this because are you like me in that you assume that construction is just a crooked business from top to bottom that there's just an accepted and constant low rumble of unethical practices and it's not even that people just look the other way it's that it's outright expected it's priced in well as ron swanson says all contractors are con artists <laughs> i do believe that to a certain extent we see kickbacks happening all over the place yes i just assumed construction industry, yeah, stuff is going on. But it still seems like this is his first time kind of asking for one. But he's the most sheepish person here. Everyone's just waiting for the word. And oh, yeah, how much do you want? I still think he's born to it, though, because nothing about Ray is straight. But the problem is, 
even with his own low-grade corruption that's always there, you brought this up already, he's still a rank amateur. He's no match for actual criminals. Of the two of them, actually, I think Carla is more equipped for that. It's a bit of a traditional noir setup here in that she is savvier and tougher than he is, and she has much more of a keen criminal imagination and ambition. I'm going to take you back just a couple of weeks ago. We were watching The Last Drive-In with Joe Bob, and Audition was the film. Mm -hmm. And something he specifically said about Oyama really rang true for me here. He's nice, but he's not innocent. Yeah, everyone is totally an amateur, including the police. The Edgertons just haven't built that kind of a criminal enterprise world. I disagree with you slightly about the police officers, but we'll get to that too. Ah, okay. So I wrote at the very beginning in my notes, is she really this big noir character? Because I think she's ordinary. I think she's tougher to have gotten through life with Smithy, her husband so far, but I don't think she's savvier. Maybe she can see Ray more clearly than he can see himself, but to me, that's about it. Interesting, because when I look at it, as you might expect in this type of film, no single character, I feel like, is being honest with any other character here. I feel like they are constantly testing each other and constantly failing. For instance, Ray's wife knows about this affair. That is completely obvious, but she never really presses him on it. She does just enough to let him know that she knows, but I don't know that I get the impression that she would necessarily do more to get him to stop or change the behavior. And then, obviously, the big test comes with the discovery of this money. It's her idea to steal it. And to me, that's just a classic femme fatale move. And I think Ray's initial response to this idea is the point of no return for her. This is what I was referencing earlier when things go instantly visibly sour. His refusal and cowardice makes him immediately, irreversibly less attractive to her. You see it in her face. You see it happen on the screen. He had one chance... And he blew it. And with his character, if he didn't blow this one, then he would blow the next one. I think it's such a great bit of writing because people reveal so much of themselves when they're confronted with something unexpected. She will always want more and be upping the ante in these cases. And he will not just be shady, but he will also be weak and pleading. Okay, she just has more to get away from than he does. His wife asks questions that don't require answers. She only goes so far and not all the way. So that's what he's going to do. I don't think that Carla loses her attraction for him. Again, I come back to this idea of where they are in this relationship. This is not the first time that she's asked him to leave and they had nothing else to take with them before this money landed. He was gonna get this kickback, which was a fair amount of money, but that was about it. So he's been putting her off, trying to get ready to go. This to her is the golden opportunity. Nobody will miss this money. I can get away from this thug that I'm married to. Why won't you just go along with me? I don't think for her it was this giant setup that, okay, now I've got him in my thrall and he's finally going to go and I'm going to get everything that I ever wanted. The means are just so much lower than that. Well, I love how differently we see this because I'm thinking more along the lines of not as severe as this maybe, but Barbara Stanwyck in Double Indemnity or Kathleen Turner in Body Heat. 
but it seems like you like it more ambiguous or that it's even not ambiguous to you. I just don't think she's a femme fatale. Maybe I'm the one who's on drugs, but they're not planning to kill or hurt anyone just to get away, not even to get more money, just to get that money. Well, in your favor, Edgerton is on your side of this discussion as well. He doesn't think of her like that either. But the one thing that Nash Edgerton does, and I totally understand why, but I totally disagree with, is this thing where he tries to avoid owning up to this being straight film noir. And I get it. It's your first feature. You want to call it something else. You want to reinvent the wheel. You're young and excited. You don't want to be pigeonholed. You might even 100% believe it when you say it. But it brings out my inner Charles Barkley. Come on, man. <laughs> you Tell me about San Antonio, Chuck. Yeah. Double fisting those churros. <laughs> Sorry. But anyway, you made an exceptional film noir. So just own that. Do you think it was maybe he didn't want to put that label on it in terms of critics then coming back to say, this isn't film noir, this isn't neo-noir, I don't know. That may be part of it, but I think there are a lot of things that go into it. Okay. Well, we're going to call it like we see it, right? Yeah, exactly. I think it's a great example of neo-noir. It should go in the neo-noir canon, as far as I'm concerned. It's in mine. Put it up there with Blood Simple, A Simple Plan, a lot of other movies with simple in the title. But getting back to these characters, I do want to clarify, I really do think that what motivates what I imagine will be their eventual disregard for each other is not malice. I just feel like they really don't know that this is who they are yet. Maybe because they've never been tested to this extent. You say they're amateurs. Maybe they don't know how badly they are going to fail when faced with circumstances like this. Maybe they've taken the path of least resistance to get up to this point. Yeah, exactly. And I think they're still in that mindset. Even later than this, it's said in the film, it's just a bit of fun. The situation was already morally bad enough in terms of how much deception and potential pain for their partners that this could cause. And I think you've answered this maybe, but why isn't just maintaining the affair at this level enough? You said she wants to get away, but for him, is it just that he wants her so much? Her husband is gross. Ray doesn't exchange two words with his wife at any point. She doesn't ask any questions. And there are sharks in their bay. <laughs> you gotta get away. Well, I think we definitely differ on how invested we each think they are in this. And my take, I feel like, is probably a little more bitter and cynical than yours. You are looking at the positive. And actually, this is kind of rare. I think I'm usually the one that's on the other side of that. But I will say, I still find them sympathetic, but that's not because of the content of their character. I think I may lean toward these less than charitable interpretations because of my own biases. I know that I am less inclined to be sympathetic to characters that don't communicate well and that don't know themselves. And I'm assuming maybe too much about their circumstances. I look at each of their home relationships, these things you're talking about. Maybe they've all fallen out of love at this point. Though I don't think that about Carlo's husband. I don't think that about Smithy. I think he's very emotionally invested in his relationship with her. Maybe if nothing else, just from a possession standpoint, I think. I think it's more than that. I think that is given away in the scene at the very end when he threatens her looking for this money. I think he's genuinely upset with himself at the extent he's gone to because he values her more than that. But anyway, with this stuff, I think maybe this is much as a coward's catalyst 
for them getting out of what they perceive as their own traps as it is anything else. So the story arc, it's just a big classic noir case of, I didn't mean for it to end up this way. Like so many of these stories go, just like the bigamist, something that we just talked about on the Patreon. There are even similarities down to them meeting in a Chinese restaurant here. Ray is hiring this arson job to be done to cover the disappearance of the money. And I love this touch of Joel Edgerton's character having that burn scar. Joel Edgerton, Billy, brings this girl along to this meeting. Did you have questions about the nature of his relationship with this girl? Because I've seen everything from girlfriend to sister to daughter when people talk about this. Okay, first off, she is the true villain of this piece. (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, she's so young. And like you mentioned, it's ambiguous at the beginning and you have to watch the film to see what they're sort of telling us. So I built a backstory for them too. She seems so young that I would almost imagine that he kidnapped her at some point Hmm. and then they just stayed together. Because I did assume some sort of sexual angle to this. So I thought girlfriend. I'm going to have to disagree with you on the kidnapping thing because I have a backstory built up for him too. And I'll get to that as well. I see it as a 22 year old picks up a 13 or 14 year old from school kind of a thing. And then they just go. Okay. Now we're getting back to where you're on the dark side of things and (laughs) I have a more optimistic viewpoint, but I definitely don't see it as family. I don't see it as sister. I don't see it as daughter. I like you see a sexual component here. Character flaws aside. Well, character flaws included actually even (laughs) Joel Edgerton's character here, Billy, he is responsible for my absolute favorite shot in this film. The shot of him sitting up above the town watching the fire that he has set is brilliant for a couple reasons. It's just a beautifully framed shot, first of all, and it makes me understand something that you've already alluded to, the closeness and the geography of this very small town that I originally pictured to be much larger than it is. And then the other thing it does, it really nails the arsonist's psychology. They frequently cannot help themselves and they have to see the pageantry of the fire trucks and the commotion. They'll return to the scene. They'll watch the same news coverage over and over about their crimes. It's often irresistible to them, almost like the crime doesn't exist for them, even if it's just a job for hire and not personal, unless they can go back and observe it to completion. It's a genius little bit of world building and character detail all at once. I love that shot too, especially from what I mentioned at the very beginning, that soundscape. We're under the bridge and now we're suddenly over top looking at everything. It also says something else to me about Billy. And it makes me think about one thing that I basically misremembered from my previous viewing. Billy is not violent. He does what he says he's going to do. He tells his girlfriend that he won't hang around and he doesn't. He's far enough away that nobody could spot him. He's so quiet and so straightforward in this job, he doesn't notice and he's not noticed by the mother. He doesn't explore the house. He has one job. So I basically remembered him as more of a driving force in the story. He doesn't, strictly speaking, escalate the violence. He's a driving force in the story because he set Smithy's mother on fire. That's true, but he doesn't mean to. (laughs) And he's not happy about it when he finds out. I think it's an important point, though. Arsonists are not murderers, necessarily. 
And unlike with some other thugs, is not in for a penny, in for a pound sort of a thing. He wants out at that point. Well, the place that everyone is gathered when this conflagration takes place, it's at this Christmas picnic that I referred to, this unchristmassy picnic. This scene does a lot of great things for me. You get that erotic charge of having your secret together and being next to each other all around these people that have no idea that that's happening. So there's that vibe that's established. Meanwhile, at the house that's about to be raised, the camera pans across from the Christmas tree and then to the audience's horror, mom asleep in the chair, and then cut back to the picnic exactly as the choir is singing the words, sleep in heavenly peace. So you get a real taste of the Edgerton's dark sense of humor there. And then the news of the fire starts to spread and you know it's bad if Santa is frantic. So the tension is really ramped up. There's a lot of interesting and fun things going on all over this picnic. It's not multiple threads necessarily, but interesting little emotional pockets where a lot of different things are happening. My second favorite sequence would have to be watching Santa trying to frantically pull his costume off because he's a firefighter. You know how I know this is great, though, and I think I said this to you at the time. Even though I've seen this multiple times, every time I watch it, I realize from the moment that she lies to Billy and says that Ray didn't call off the job, I know that my stomach is going to hurt for the next hour. Uh, mine did way before that. The second we see the hidden bag, my stomach dropped. I think I even got that butterfly weird flop over feeling you get when you ride a roller coaster. That's what I had and it didn't leave. And it wasn't tension necessarily because I knew what was going to happen. It was depression as well. I still even jumped at the same spots because I could watch this again and again when I feel like I need some punishment, I guess. And it is punishment galore from this point on because now someone's dead. Someone has to pay. So these noir troubles start piling up on both ends of the affair. Carla and Smithy, they go to examine the ruins. The money isn't there, which naturally makes him suspicious. Leonard, from the job site, he's up to no good. And by virtue of those actions, he knows more than is good for them. So he's got to go. Even the elements are conspiring against Ray with this rain that inhibits the concrete work that will help him cover his misdeeds. And it's not just rain. It's biblical it feels like. It even switches to a God's eye view at one point in the film when this is happening. And then the shark attack that is intimated later, that really rounds out this feeling that Providence's dark hand is moving very specifically and very spitefully. Yeah, you didn't have to take the doggy. He was just trying to go visit his best pal. So as things start to escalate here, at one point I just have to wonder how much is Ray just constantly scrambling to keep all these balls in the air. Is his wife noticing this? Because he's doing all these textbook things that they always tell you to look for as far as changes in someone's behavior when someone has committed a horrible crime. Is it just that everyone's all wrapped up in their own schemes and intrigues that no one has time to pay attention to what he's doing? Because almost all of these characters are unsavory. And this is kind of underlined about this thing that I was feeling, you say Billy, or at least imply that Billy might be a kidnapper and a pervert, when that's the case, but your arsonist is still the good guy, quote unquote, because he's the only one that seems to have a modicum of self-control or operates by a code of any kind. It just makes me wonder about all the other characters. For instance, Ray's wife, we talked about her briefly already. Is she truly an 
innocent, do you feel like? Why don't I feel more protective of that character? Do you feel the same way? I don't feel protective of her at all either. It's the questions that she doesn't ask from the very beginning, like I mentioned. She's not looking for answers. She'll make a statement that requires no follow-up. So why would any of this be fulfilling for her? I don't think of her as cold, or even if she were, that that's some sort of justification for infidelity. She's just a blank. She's a beige. She doesn't even look particularly upset at any point. It's just a big nothing. And so it's so believable with all of these characters. It's not surprising when the next terrible thing happens or the next terrible person gets involved. Nobody has anywhere to go. I want to make clear, actually, I think you feel the same way that I do about this. We're not saying that she is underwritten. It's that she's very well written as a void. Yes. Thank you. Thank you for clarifying. That is exactly what I meant. There is actually one guy that sticks out for me now that I think about it. Jake, Ray's right hand at the construction site. He is the one upright guy in this whole thing, I feel like. I like that character a lot just for how no-nonsense he is. He's ready to bring down the hammer. Or the pickaxe. Or the shovel. <laughs> but we still keep piling on the noir here. It never stops. In addition to Ray's other miseries, now someone is sending extortion notes. You've got the first time the constable comes sniffing around, and that's always good to raise the blood pressure. And I want to say, this is a great performance. He completely puts me off the scent of what we will discover about that constable character later on. Because like I mentioned earlier, he comes off, he says, basically, he's an amateur. Things like this don't happen. So he had to sort of dust off the manual to figure out how he's going to conduct this investigation. And it's not like these characters don't know that the darkness is moving in. They even acknowledge it later. They say, if we don't leave now, something's going to happen. Uh, yeah, duh doy, as you would say. <laughs> it's a little late for that by this point. And that's rooted in these inescapable film noir truths. Primarily that, at first it seems so easy, but then there is no stopping things once this is set in motion. No one is prepared to reap what they've sown. At every single stage, it's worse than they thought it was going to be. And if you were just told where it starts and where it ends... You could easily think, this is ridiculous. How do people end up in situations like this? So I think it's really one of their greatest achievements that they come up with a set of circumstances that escalates this believably because you look at the deaths that occur and you have this ever just slightly amplified series of murders slash accidents. And the first is absolutely accidental. And then each one that follows is just a little bit less accidental than the one that came before it. It's tricky to do that and maintain credibility, but the Edgerton's knocked that out of the park here. I think you're so right here. There's just so many moving parts, and the second you recruit somebody outside of your duo, you're sunk. Edward G. Robinson would even say, with your duo, you're sunk. Because in Double Indemnity, he says, it's ten times as difficult with two people. You sure said something there, partner. <laughs> <laughs> every stage, every character, every business, every partnership, every marriage, nobody is prepared. So as we near the end of this thing, we are entering into classic territory of bargaining chips and wrapping up loose ends, knowing in our hearts that each move is just going to open a whole new can of worms. And I alluded to this already, too. I love what they do with Smithy's character in this final confrontation that he has with Carla. They've planted this seed of suspicion to the point that you're questioning whose life is worth anything. 
is Carla's life worth more than his mother's life? It's such a beautiful twist here that he thinks he has it all figured out, but it turns out that he's got it all wrong, but simultaneously somehow still right enough. And it also raises a similar question to No Country for Old Men for me. When would you stop looking for your money? Though they accounted for that a little better with this plan, the plan just didn't work. Meanwhile, on Ray's side, there's this growing question of how many people are you going to have to kill to keep this going? Even the accidents are getting completely out of control. When he runs Jake off the road to stop him from going to the authorities, you've never heard a crowd reaction like when that baby started to cry from the back seat in that overturned car. Was it a gasp like mine yeah. or even bigger? It was literally 200 people simultaneously gasping and holding their breath. It was amazing to be a part of, to have that experience in a theater, having everyone feel the same thing like that. And if you know your film noir, you know that when Ray says, like we did in our opening scene, I just have one more thing left to do. <laughs> yeah. You know that things have not gotten as bad as they're going to get. You know there is still mayhem to come. And boy, do things get bad. By the time the dust settles, there is no money, no lover, no hope. All in the most permanent and devastating way. All of this was for nothing. And even if you don't find these characters sympathetic up until now, it's hard not to feel gutted and completely hollowed out inside by this finale. I think what this film does better than any other film I've seen in a long time, and the number one reason I chose it for the show, is that it makes you understand so completely that in the world of noir, that sometimes being the one left alive is the worst punishment far worse than any death that can be visited upon you. I think a lot about what Ray is doing down the road. Does he get away with all this in the sense that he's never associated with this crime scene? If so, does he just tuck his tail between his legs and go back to his wife and live the rest of his life a hollowed out shell? Because this feels like this is one of those, this is my last shot situations and it couldn't have gone worse. And he doesn't strike me as the type to recover from this. Or, going back to my more cynical take, the things I was saying earlier, does he come to the realization that he was never invested in any of it, really, that much? In anything in his whole life, actually. And he's able to go back to his sad, boring normal? Or does he just keep walking in shock forever until he virtually disappears? I think he gives himself up. Really? Yes. I think it's path of least resistance. He has got to figure that it's going to come back to him somehow. Or even if he doesn't, that's where he's going. Because prison is definitely better than his house. So as he walks off into the distance here, does he just walk straight to the police station? Is that how, I mean, immediately, is that how you feel about it? Yep. I don't know if I feel that. But maybe you're right, because it's been cowardly up to now, and that does, like you say, feel like the path of least resistance. I guess when it's all said and done, maybe I'm the one that feels like I'm just walking off into the distance forever, never recovering from this shock. Because that's definitely how you feel. It's such a galvanizing, completely devastating ending. So a perfect way to kick off our film noir month, I feel like. Yes. Do you love coming back to this one as much as I do? So much. Well, how about a recommendation? Do you have something else from the dark end of the street? I do. Something that you mentioned earlier. I picked A Simple Plan from 1998, directed by Sam Raimi, with Bill Paxton, Bridget Fonda, and Billy Bob Thornton. 
Paxton and Thornton play brothers who, along with a friend, come across millions of dollars in lost cash at a plane crash site. And they make a plan to keep the money hidden until any suspicion dies down. But of course, no plan is that simple, and everyone starts to mistrust the other and murder ensues. I really liked this one when I saw it, and it was a great period of neo-noir for me too. Fargo, this, Red Rock West, mm -hmm. U-Turn, Bound. There were a lot to love in the late 90s, early 2000s. The Last Seduction. Perfect. I think it's well cast. I think the cast fits well together. It's incredibly suspenseful. And we've got that bleak Minnesota landscape. So based on everything that we've learned from this, if you find millions of dollars, are you going to tell me about it? Hmm. <laughs> I don't know. Are you saying that I have? Have you been in the attic? Is that why the string that pulls down the ladder to the attic has gone missing? Hmm. What a coincidence. How about your recommendation? My recommendation this time is The Horseman, also from 2008. And that's written and directed by Stephen Kistricius, and it stars Peter Marshall, Christopher Summers, Everett McQueen, and Hannah Levian. It's a vigilante revenge film about a father that discovers his daughter has been sexually attacked, and then he sets out to collect his pound of flesh from those responsible. And it all goes super well and has a happy ending. <laughs> but I haven't seen it, so I should watch it, right? Definitely. The mid to late 2000s was an absolute goldmine for grim Australian crime films. There was The Square, The Proposition, Van Diemen's Land, which we covered way back on episode 28, Animal Kingdom. It was a real golden era for that. And this is, I think, the most underrated of the batch. It might not have gotten as big an audience because I think it's probably the most relentlessly grim of all those choices. It can be a tough watch, but I think it's very worthwhile. Peter Marshall's central performance is fantastic, and the movie itself makes you really evaluate the value of retribution without glossing over the depravity of what it takes to even the score. And then just the extent that a man will go to in the name of fatherly love and protection. It really was a great time for Australian film, and with this one, you can plumb some of its darkest depths. So once again, that's two great recommendations, A Simple Plan and The Horseman. And that brings us to the end of episode 157. First and foremost here, we'd like to say a special thanks to Matt Kukulka for becoming our newest Patreon supporter. We appreciate that very much. If what we do here is valuable to you and you would like to support that, we would certainly love for you to check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash magiclantern. The $5 a month level gets you access to a big backlog of bonus episodes, and those come out on the Mondays alternating with regular episodes, so you never have to go a week without new Magic Lantern in your life. If you would just like to get in touch with us, you can reach us via email at magiclanternpodcast at gmail.com. We are on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Just search for Magic Lantern Podcast on any of those platforms. We are on Twitter, at Lantern underscore cast. And I just wanted to take a second to say thanks to everyone who has shared the show or given us feedback since last time. Spencer Seams at the Shoot the Piano Player podcast, the fine gentleman at Fuds on Film, Andy Wolverton, Leanne Kubich, Andrew Pierce, and Brent Calderwood. If you're sharing the show or talking about us, please make sure to tag us so we can say thanks. You can find our show on Audible, Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher Radio, Spotify, just about anywhere you get your podcasts, we are there. A special thanks this time to Apple Podcast user Matthew AK for leaving us a very nice review. 
If you would like to leave us a rating or review via any of those services, we would certainly appreciate that. And finally, you can find all of our episodes, including supplemental material at the website, magiclanternpodcast.com. And thank you for listening to the Magic Lantern Podcast. 